said, a man comes to the uh, Orthodox rabbi, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi rabbi in Israel, and says, um, I, I need you to say Kaddish for my dog. <laughs> and the Haredi rabbi says, you, 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 can, you can only say Kaddish for a person. So, but what I recommend is you go across the street to the reform rabbi and ask the reform rabbi, because I'm sure they'll do it. So the man says, okay, I'll go do that. And is that the person to whom I give my $30,000 donation? <laughs> and the Orthodox rabbi says, why didn't you tell me that the dog was Jewish? <laughs> so, that's okay, so it's a good time to start up. So, I hope my presentation won't be too long. I, I, I have in mind a short piece I wanted to put together, and it's based on a new book. So it's a book called The Exodus. It's by a local professor. He may have even spoke, he may have spoken here or in Encinitas before, Richard Elliott Friedman. He's lived in uh, San Diego for many, many years, and he's one of the more prominent biblical scholars in the world, very, and very dynamic. Rabbi Patty and I have gotten a chance to study with him before. And so this is his new book, and I wanted to share um, some of the ideas in it. It asks a really interesting question, which has been asked before, which is, did the exodus really happen? So I want to fill you in on some of what's going on in academia. Um, I, I don't need to introduce myself, but I switched to be a rabbi from being a professor of Jewish studies when I was 40 years old and I'm now 51. So I've been at Ner Tamid for, this is my 11th year, oh, down, wait, no, down the street. Yep, hi Ner Tamid. <laughs> Clean my coffee mug while I'm away. And before that I was in academia, and I wanted to share a little story about some of what scholars in the ivory tower talk about that I find interesting. Wow, I need to at synagogue, because everybody talks while I talk at synagogue. So here it is. One of the questions they say is, did the exodus really happen? Now, between about 1880 and 1920, there was a golden age of archaeology in Palestine, what I'd like to call the Holy Land. It was when um, uh, William Fox Albright and the great archaeologists started to dig in Israel. And it was amazing because they started to prove things that happen in our Bible that many people thought were fairy tales. We'd never had archaeological evidence of things. They found inscriptions that from the time of King David, which is amazing because King David was the second king of Israel. That's pretty early. That would be like finding something from uh, you know, the second president of the United States only 3,000 years ago. And uh, people thought, a lot of people thought the word King David is a word that means beloved. David is spelled the same as Dodi, and it means my beloved. So people thought it was King Beloved was just, a, it was like a fairy tale from Walt Disney. It was just a story that Jews told. And then they found archaeological evidence. You've probably been to Jerusalem, many of you, to the city of David. Um, then they found Hezekiah's tunnel. Some of us have gotten to go through Hezekiah's tunnel, which is a water tunnel under the city of Jerusalem. And uh, you can wade through the water, and you see ancient Hebrew inscriptions from, over 3, 000, from about a little under 3,000 years ago. No, no, it's of my honor. It's a pleasure to have you. 
And so, so between 1880 and 1920, archaeologists were finding things from the time of Jeremiah and the time of King David, and everyone said, who knew? These Bible stories are true. Then, from 1920, uh, in the, the 1990s, I told you I'd jump ahead and I wouldn't waste your time. In 1990s, people have to write dissertations and make books on new ideas. No, please. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Okay. And the new ideas in the 1990s were that, nah, we have to disagree with our parents, our parent generation, who said archaeology proves a lot of stuff in the Bible. We want to go the other way and say, ah, it doesn't prove that much. And so people were publishing books say, yeah, some of the things are true, but a lot of it's fake. And we have a great example. We bet the Exodus never happened. Rabbi Walpi, David Walpi, a, a fantastic conservative rabbi at, Mount, at Temple Sinai in LA, he actually gave a sermon on Passover where he said, look, the scholars say the Exodus never happened. Uh, it took him about a year to recover in his pulpit. People were not happy with that sermon. But he was saying, look, this is what happened in the 1990s. The books were coming out. Eh, don't believe the other books so much. Look at the Exodus, because if you look in the Sinai Desert, do you find evidence of two million people crossing the desert? They would have left a lot of latrines. They would have left a lot of trash. And when you dig in the Sinai Desert, we don't have any evidence of an exodus from Egypt. And we do have records in Egyptian papyruses or papyri. There are Egyptian records of Hebrews, which was our name at the time of Moses, or earlier than Moses. He was also called a Hebrew. We used to be called Hebrews, then we were called Israelites, and then we were called Jews. So they have records of Hebrews, but no Israelites. No Israelites in Egypt. And so Exodus must be made up. And that was considered in the 1990s um, the thing to believe if you were teaching at an Ivy League university. But has anyone here ever been to the Sinai Desert? I, I think okay. so. <laughs> I hope it's when it was Israel. When it was, right, I, me too. I used to climb Mount Moses, which was with the monastery. And, uh, Did you sleep in the monastery? Did you eat there? Uh, uh, I, you know what? I, don't, I think we slept on the floor. The food was terrible. And the <laughs> That's right. But one of the things, if you go to Sinai, is it's brutal. It's mostly just rocky, rocky, rocky desert. It's like the Mojave and, uh, and a lot of sand. There's not a lot of water. So one of the things is that the idea was there's no archaeological evidence for the exodus, but the truth is that one of the archaeologists who dug in the Sinai, he dug 14 meters down. That's a lot in archaeology. 14 yards down he dug. And you know what he found? He found a tank from the Yom Kippur War in the 1970s. So one of the things you realize is the desert swallows things deep into the sand. And even if we did cross the desert, we wouldn't find anything. They were, they were talking over 3,000 years ago. You're really going to find someone's discarded wooden fork, a little bit of trash from a campsite of the Israelites. You're not going to find anything. So we're back to the beginning, which is not finding anything in Sinai doesn't prove 
that the Exodus never happened. So we have this book, Exodus. So what comes up next? So, so here we go. So was there an Exodus from Egypt? What do we know? And what do we think might have happened? Well, we got that Exodus plague stuff. And some of it can be a little hard to believe. The sun didn't shine for three days. Um, the firstborn all died, including the firstborn of the cattle. The waters separated and the Jews, the Israelites, walked through on dry land in the middle. So we have some extraordinary miracles. It's okay, it happens to me all the time, but that reminds me of a TV show. So I'm like, but it may be a message for me, so then I'm interested. So, it's, no, it's okay. It, it, happens, it happens to all of us. It certainly happens to me. Um, so I was going back to, so we have all those, all those miracles. And for some people, especially scholars, they're hard to believe. You know, what really, really, really happened? So now I want to tell you, uh, and did really two million people or hundreds of thousands of Jews come out of Egypt? Those are very big numbers for the old, old, old days. Those are very big population numbers. So is the Bible making things up? What, what really, really happened? So now I want to take you through a couple of the things that we've learned over the last 50 years in academia that may give us a clue as to what really happened. And I think I might give you the answer before I give you the clues so that it sounds like more persuasive. So what? Uh, that's good. No, no, it's good. I just texted him. It was me, so I, I called. So here we go. Let's just say that some parts of the Torah are older than other parts. There's a way we do this. My father, not interesting to anybody but me. My father was a scholar of the Bible, a professor of Bible. And his specialty was ancient languages, ancient Hebrew, Akkadian, uh, Sumerian. And people like my father, biblical philologists, are very good at looking at the language of the Torah and knowing what is old, old Hebrew and what is later Hebrew. So if I showed you some Shakespeare and I showed you some People magazine, would you be able to tell which is older? Of course you could. So my father and others can look at the Bible and we can see what is the oldest parts of the Bible and what is Hebrew that is from a, a later time. And I'll tell you what the three oldest parts of the Bible are that pretty much all scholars agree on this. So interestingly, they are by or attributed to women. So the first is the Song of Miriam. So the song of the exodus of crossing the sea, we often call it the song of the sea. Yeah. In the Torah, it's called the song of Miriam. It's easy when you open that Torah scroll and you roll it, immediately you see it because it has a special poetic, um, it's divided into the poetry verses, it's poetry. The other oldest part of the Bible is not in the Torah. And it is the Haftarah, the day that we read in synagogue, the Song of the Sea, the Song of Miriam. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It, I'll give you the first two words. It's called the Song of, and then it has a woman's name. It's the Song of Deborah. It comes from the book of Judges. 
which is right after um, the book of Joshua. So it goes Deuteronomy, then Joshua, then Judges. And it is the song of the leader of the Israelites, Deborah. And it's about her victory over the locals and her creation essentially of a Israelite country in the land of Canaan, Canaan. The third piece is actually the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy. Now that is by a man or attributed to a man and it's shorter and I'll get to that later. Um, so if we say, well, we wanna to get to the original stuff, we're historians and we're asking this question, did the Exodus really happen? Let's look at the oldest part of the Torah and the oldest part of the Torah is the song of the Exodus. We know that it was a song that was sung in little sanctuaries in the land of Israel before the temple even was built. So before the, the temple of Solomon was built, they would sing this in altar, at altar sites. And basically, we're not exactly sure what worship was, but there were these small sites, and you would go, and this song would be sung. And uh, it was the song of victory at the sea, the song of Miriam. And we also think they sang the song of Deborah. So think of like earliest Jewish worship was singing the songs of Deborah and the songs of Miriam, uh, maybe even before the Psalms, which were uh, the next stage of Jewish worship. And some of the Psalms are very, very old. Okay, what does that tell us? Well, number one, the original story of the Exodus that we see in the song is, and I should read you some of it, it goes like this. I won't sing it. I'm not uh, just warning you. You don't want me to sing. Trust me. Um, and this song was probably, uh, scholars think, was, was composed very shortly after the event of the actual exodus. So it's, very, it's, it's the closest to when it happened. The song says in English, By wind from your nostrils, water was massed. The surf piled up like a heap. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They, the Egyptians, sank like lead in the awesome water. Who is like you among all the other gods? And then it says, and the people heard what you did. The people of the Philistines, the people in Edom, the chiefs of Moab, and all of the residents of Canaan. So I want to point out something weird about this, which is, first of all, Moab, Edom, and the Canaanites, Moab is Jordan, and Edom is right around Israel, and Canaan is what Israel was. How did they hear about it, about us crossing the sea? Number one, it really goes out of its way to say that those people who live in Israel they know all about this, this thing that just happened all the way over at the Red Sea. The second thing you'll notice about it is it doesn't talk about the Israelites walking, the miracles that are very, well, these must have been made up stories because of the miracles. It doesn't mention a miracle. It doesn't mention um, Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> there are no walls of water. There are no Israelites crossing through on dry land beneath, between the water. In the original story, what it does say is God blew wind, and the wind formed, in Hebrew, it could be considered a wall of water, and drowned the Egyptians 
who sank to the bottom like lead. Now, that's something I can relate to. I mean, I'm a rabbi. I can relate to all of it on the right day. But on a day like this, um, that sounds like the very strong wind came up and there was a wave, a tidal wave, a big wave, something like that. Waves are not uncommon in the Red Sea. They can happen for various reasons. We, by, by the way, I, I didn't know until Ur Prigozhin, who was, um, very, was a friend of mine and a resident here at Seacrest many years ago, um, he gave me a video about earthquakes in the land of Israel. Earthquakes were extremely common in the biblical period, less so now. It was a period of great activity. And when you get an earthquake, what happens in the water? You get a wave. You get a tsunami if, if it's a strong enough earthquake. So the original version is there was wind, there was a wave, and the Egyptians drowned. Now, the later version, which occurs in the chapter before this in Exodus, it, it's a midrash. What a midrash is an interpretation. It sees in the original version that there was a wall of water. And then it says, wall of water? What is that? Is it like what the rabbi said? It's a wave? But the midrash goes, no, nah, maybe it was like a wall, like Cecil B. DeMille will make a movie about years from now. And they're the ones that say it was like two walls of water and the Israelites walked through the middle. That's from a much later period. But the original story, the original story of the Exodus in the Song of Miriam seems to make sense to me, which is a very, for, it's still a miracle to me. It's a very fortunate, very fortuitous wave, right? Right, right when the Egyptians are following us, there's a wave and it wipes them out. That's very meaningful to me. But I'm not really a Cecil B. DeMille kind of guy. I don't like this extra added miracle. You know, I don't need a super big miracle. You know what I mean? Like uh, when, when my child was born, it was enough of a miracle. I didn't say, she's the most beautiful thing in the whole world that was ever born. It's okay. It's enough. She's just very nice looking. So it's enough for me that the Egyptians were drowned. But you saw the word wall of water and how it got interpreted into two walls and dry land and more. So we have this song about a simple exodus. So then, one, oh, go ahead, and then I'll get to the I don't want to interrupt, no, no, but please. the latest thinking is we should not be joyous that they died. Good, I'm glad you pointed out. And when, when we sing Micha Mocha, we're supposed to remember, and at the Seder, that we should not be joyous that Egyptians died, yeah. and a, a very, very important Jewish teaching. Right, and here it doesn't say, in Miriam's song, there's no happiness that the Egyptians died. It's just the happiness that we escaped and that the other peoples in Israel should hear about. Okay, so what if there was an exodus from Egypt, but it wasn't all of the Israelites who lived at the time? It wasn't the complete population. And one of the reasons I raise this question is because we have the... The oldest parts of the Bible, the two women's songs, were sung in Israel, and they are about Israel. Even the Exodus song is about those neighbors of ours, those Canaanites, those Edomites and Moabites. I mean, it would be like saying those Rancher Bernardoites and those Scripps Ranchites and those Escondido folk. They, you know, like they heard all about this thing that happened in Israel. It's clearly about the area of Israel. And the Song of Deborah is about conquering 
the area and establishing a country in around, um, I'll say around 1150 BCE. So here's the latest theory, and then I'm going to give you a few interesting facts to prove it, and maybe we can have a, some questions. The theory is this, and I, I should re refer to my name. What if not all of the Hebrews, I'm going to use the old term, went to Egypt? Now, if you read Genesis, you know that Abraham spent some time in Egypt and then went back to Canaan. Isaac stopped by Egypt, went back to Canaan. Jake, Jacob went to Egypt and stayed because there was famine and Joseph brought him there. And we're just in that part of the Torah right now uh, in the reading cycle. And the implication is when Jacob came, all the Israelites came, whatever that means. What if some of the Israelites stayed behind in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel today? Not all of them went to Egypt um, in the time of Joseph. And so you have a people of Hebrews living in Canaan. You have some Hebrews who went to Egypt. Let's call the Hebrews that are in Canaan, let's call them Israelites. And let's not call the people in Egypt Israelites. Let's just say Hebrews, because that's the term that's used a lot in the first couple of chapters in Exodus. The Hebrews who were in Egypt, Joseph was a Hebrew, and some of the people, Pharaoh's people didn't like it. Pharaoh didn't mind that Joseph was a Hebrew. We don't get the word Israelite a lot. We get Hebrews. Now, you can ask me, is there evidence that there were Hebrews in Egypt aside from the Bible? Actually, yes. In, Greek, in Egyptian papyri, papyruses, we have records of Apiru, Habiru, and Hebrews from the Canaan area who lived in Egypt. We don't have any papyruses that say Israelites lived in Egypt, but we have lots that say that Hebrews did. So what if the term Israelite was a term for the people in Israel, and the term Hebrew Common, we're, we're from the same folks, were the people that went to Egypt. So if you're telling me, Rabbi, that there were, when the people who left Egypt in the Exodus and they got to Israel and they wrote this song and sang it in Israel, the Miriam song, um, then who were they? So I've got some clues for you. Have you ever noticed in the book of Deuteronomy, when we get to the promised land and we're right at the border, Actually, I think it's also at the end of the book of Numbers. A fight breaks out. What's the fight about? The fight is that 10 of the tribes have um, territory assigned to them. So each of the tribes um, gets territory assigned to them. But there's a fight about one of the tribes that no one wants to give territory to. Now, this is super advanced Jewish stuff. Does anybody <laughs> want to take a guess? as to which tribe, um, no one, everyone has their land, each tribe, and they don't want to give any to this one tribe. The priestly. Very good. The Levites, the tribe of Levi. Now, do we find any Jews, Israelites, with Egyptian names in the entire Torah or Bible? There are eight Israelites who have Egyptian names. One of them is Moses. Moshe is not a Hebrew name, it's an Egyptian name. There's a Midrash made up about what it sounds like in Hebrew. It sounds like Drew, Drew out of the water. But we know it's a classic Egyptian name. We have other na Egyptian names, Pinchas, 
the story of Pinchas is a famous one. We have Hofni, Hur, Merari, Mushi, Pashur, and Moshe. All Egyptian names. And guess who they were in the Exodus story? They're all Levites. They're all from the tribe of Levi. Um, there's not one non-Levite with an Egyptian name in the whole Bible. So what if, and now there's more evidence I'll get to in a little bit, which is just this. But here's the thesis. The Le- there was a group of Hebrews that did just like the Bible says in the Genesis. They went to Egypt. There was famine in the land, and they're like, we're getting out of here. It's kind of like our relatives from Europe. Some left, some didn't. The ones who left went to Egypt, and they lived according to the Torah. Like the Egyptian documents tell us, we got along pretty well with them, but then they got enslaved, or something terrible happened to them. And that makes sense to us. It made sense in terms of ancient history. And they left. And they crossed the sea and escaped because of a wave, and they made it to the land of Israel, and they found their fellow relatives, but they hadn't seen in a couple hundred years, right? And they're like, we're Hebrews, you're Hebrews, and guess who is in charge of that group? Deborah. What if it was a matriarchal, largely matriarchal religion? Now, this kind of makes sense because the archaeology is that the Song of Deborah is archaeologically true. One of the two oldest sections of the Torah is it details the conquest of a certain part of Canaan. And archaeologically, we find a conquest of Canaan at exactly that right temporary, temporal layer. So, and we have references to, these are somewhat controversial, to the mother of Israel in texts that are not Jewish. There's a reference to the fact of a war, I think it's a Hittite text or a Moabite text, with the mother of Israel. It's kind of like George Washington was the father of our country. Deborah was the mother of Israel. She was like the main figure who basically conquered the Canaan area. She was already there, but she united the Hebrew tribes, conquered that area, and they called themselves Israel. And they even had a name for God. And it wasn't yod heh vav Does anybody know what their name for God was? I'll give you a hint. Does anybody know the conservative synagogue in La Jolla? Yes, Bethel. Bethel. Bethel was the most famous center city of the Israelite kingdom. Bethel, it means the house of El. They always called God El or Elohim. Kind of makes sense because even in Canaanite theology, the, the father of all the gods is called El. And if you want to say gods in general, you get the word Elim. And you've probably heard these in some of our prayers. So like, So even there you're saying, um, praise God, um, who is above the other, the El, El Elyon, the El God above the other gods. And so they loved the word. They, their, their name was El. Their place was called Bethel. And so they called El. This group of Levites comes around the time, or maybe a little bit before, Deborah is conquering the land. And they straggle in. And they say, we're your long-lost cousins, and we're here. We want to join with you. What would the people in Israel not want to do? 
they would not want to give them any of their land. So then we have this thing. The Levites don't get to own land, um, and, they're and they're restricted from it. None of the territory goes to the Levites. Some of them have Egyptian names. They also have this idea of an ark. And you ever see, you know how the ark is carried? You have two long poles, and it has a thing, and it's got gold. Well, that actually comes from an Egyptian practice. They would call them what we call in English barks. So there's a relationship between the bark and the ark. So the, just think the bark and the ark. The Egyptians used to have these things that look like boats, but they never went on water. And they were, they carried, they were sacred objects. And they would be carried on long poles. And you might see them in the kind of Cecil B. DeMille movie or something like that. And looks very, very similar to our ark. Who were the only people allowed to carry the ark? The Levites, the priests. Um, there are other things. There's no real record of circumcision in the land of Israel in the time of Deborah. There is a record of circumcision in Egypt. They knew about circumcision. And guess who talks about circumcision in the Torah? The Levites. They're, all, they're very much about circumcision. They're the ones that um, are involved with circumcision. And so imagine this Levite, these, these, let's not call them the Levites. Let's call them, uh, well, actually, let's, what's the word Levite mean? The word Levi means something like to accompany. That's kind of the Rashi on it. But what does Levi really mean? It means someone who is attached to another person, probably as a servant. Right? It's an attached person. It's a non-citizen. It is a person um, kind of like a slave or a resident alien. It's the non-citizen who works or is enslaved by someone else. It's an attached person. So I'll say an attached servant. So in these Hebrews, they called themselves attached people. They were attached to the Israelites as slaves. And now, if you read the Torah, and people like Rabbi Patty are like, this makes a lot of sense to me, when they get to Israel and they're like, we're your long-lost cousins, take us in, the cousins are like, you can't have any land, we're not taking you in. And they're like, but we were slaves, we were attached people, we were slaves in Egypt, and they're like, you know what you can do? You can be slaves to God. You can serve the temple and now you're not attached to Pharaoh, you're attached to God, and you're the priests, and you'll run the worship. You can carry this ark thing that you're really, really, really into. You can make us do circumcision, which you're really, really into. And they were, they were the religion, they brought the religion. Because the Deborah people were mostly, they weren't religious. They were like, we're just a tribe of Hebrews. The Levites say to them, but you do worship God, don't you? And they say, yeah, we worship El, don't you? And the Levites say, well, actually, we don't worship El. We worship yud heh vav -Hey. We worship Adonai. And you didn't know that that's the name of El? That's the real name of El. Now, have you ever read the story of the burning bush? Yeah. Moses goes to the burning bush. There's also another story that's related to it. Goes to the burning bush, and when God says, and by the way, where is Moses at the time? Moses isn't in Egypt. He's out in Midian, which is just south of the land of Israel. It's kind of Saudi Arabia. So it's just south of the land of Israel. He's, he's hiding away. And he says, you've got to go back to Egypt 
and rescue those rescue your your brethren there and Moses says but what am I supposed to call you remember that weird thing and God says just say say, say my name yod hey vav hey and Moses says they don't know who that is they won't know what I'm talking about and he says okay tell them my name is yod hey vav hey and I'm the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses says, I can tell them that. Now think of what the Levites would have told the people in the land of Israel. They would have gone in and they would have been like, what? so you worship God, don't you? And they would have been, sure, El. And they're like, El, that's not God. God is yod heh vav is the unpronounceable yod heh vav And you know what? The El that you call El the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Hebrew relatives that we share, it's really yod heh vav It's the exact message of the burning bush, which is, you forgot God's name, and I'm going to tell it to you. You're calling God Elohim, which just means God, or El, which means God, but it's yod heh vav and now you know. So then the people, the Deborah's people, Deborah's Israelites are like, we can accept that. That sounds good. We didn't know that El is really yod heh And then in the Torah, they call it a lot, yod heh Elohim. They put the words together, God, you know, as we do in our blessings. And so um, there are, and I, I could go on, but there are numer- numerous other, I'm just saying if there's any, oh, I'll get one, which is, well, no, it's, I'll leave that one out. There's so many good ones. There are even things about straw. And remember the brick making? They didn't have enough straw. In the land of Israel, they don't use straw. They didn't use straw to make bricks. But they did in Egypt. And other, so things like circumcision, Egyptian names, things like that. If people say, well, the exodus didn't really happen. We looked in the sand in Sinai and didn't see any mark that said Moses was here. Right? <laughs> but we know that's not evidence for anything in a desert. Right? But what we do know is when we... It seems there were already people who created a land of Israel in Israel. And the person who did it was the mother of Israel. It was Deborah. And when this group arrived of people who said, we're your brethren, they were given the religious functions. By the way, the descriptions of the Levites in the Torah are pretty violent. The people, the slaves who came from Egypt we're not like this saying, oi, take me in. We, the ones we hear about, Pinchas with his spear, the Levites were tough hombres. They were really, really tough. They were the temple guards. Sometimes we think of Levites as like the choir in the temple. They were the musicians, but they were also the guards, and they had breastplates, and they had spears, and they had weapons. And so you can imagine if they showed up and wanted to move in with you, you might say, oi, I can't say no. How would you like to run the temple? And so they ran the temple worship. So the Levites brought the religion. Um, by the way, the whole, there are two Ten Commandments versions in the Torah. One comes from the land of Israel, and one comes from the Levites. When you mention Shabbat, the one for the land of Israel says, yeah, Shabbat, because the earth was made in six days, and God rested on the seventh day. The other version of the Ten Commandments says, yeah, Shabbat, because we were slaves in Egypt. And when we got out of Egypt, you should get a day of rest. Because, and 
even slaves and servants and non-citizens, they should all get the same day of rest. So you can see, we had a tradition of the Ten Commandments from the land of Israel. It wasn't a big deal that we were slaves. And the other one's like, it was a very big deal we were slaves. How about the love your neighbor as yourself? And that included non-Jews. That's a big mistake people make. A lot of people who are anti-Semitic say, when the Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself, they're just talking about your neighbor Jew. That's not true. It's not accurate in biblical Hebrew at all. The reah, love your reah as yourself, was your not, included your non-Jewish, the people who lived around you. And so it makes sense. We knew what it was like to be slaves in the land of Egypt. And a lot of the Passover traditions and the ethical traditions of protecting workers' rights and protecting immigrant rights, all of that comes from the Levite codes that came into the land of Israel. And so that's my conclusion, which is this, which is I think it's very important, has a bonus for women, which I think is important in a tradition that has strong women, that the two oldest sections, Song of Deborah, Song of Miriam, and they are largely accurate. The Song, of Miri the Song of Miriam was, those Levites came and told us this story. So here we will be at Beth El, in the, the, the temple of El, here in Israel. And we're going to sing a song saying, our relatives came. It never mentions Israelites in the Song of the Sea. It just says, we came. Like, we came, Hebrews, from the land of Egypt. And we were, the water saved us. And they got here, and the Canaanites and the Edomites and all the locals, they know about it. And they joined with us. There's archaeological evidence for it. And so we're a combination of two peoples, the people who were the slaves in the land of Egypt, who, um, and for whom Miriam was an important figure, and they joined with the brand new country of Israel um, under the leadership of Deborah. And that's the latest theory of the Exodus. So that's my talk. Thanks very much. That's a lot of fun. So we're at 12.35, and I want to allow, whether it's an appropriate time to let people go, or whether you want me to take one or two questions. It's whatever you think's right. One or two questions. How about we take one, maybe two questions, and then I'll make sure everyone can go. Please. Abraham was the first one to be circumcised, right? Yes, he circumcised himself. All right. Was he a Levite? That, so you're right. There are no Levites yet. They weren't He was just a Hebrew. Just the, so who told him? That's a good question. So the, you're, you're no, ex exactly right. That um, where does the tradition of Moses being circum, I mean, sorry, Abraham being circumcised come from? It could be that it was. Let's just take it at face value. That remember, we were the Hebrews, then we were Hebrew Levites who joined with Hebrew Israelites, and then we become Jews. So it could be that some of our Hebrew relatives did do circumcision. It could also be that some of our Hebrew relatives didn't do circumcision. It's interesting that um, um, there are only really one, two of the earliest stories about circumcision. One of them is the attack on the city of Shechem in response to the rape of Dina. Dina is raped, and the Israelite, the sons of Jacob say, we're going to go kill those guys. And the way they do it is they convince the locals, the local Canaanites, to circumcise themselves, and then they attack. Do you know who came up with that plan? Which son of, ja which son of Jacob? Levi. 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 So, so I'm saying it could have been a tradition that went back even before Egypt, but it's not clear everyone did it. 
It could have been that some of them did it. And, and, that is, and remember, those are the Hebrews. When we talk Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're talking the Hebrews, um, and we all agree we're, we're Hebrews. And I always thought it was the Kohanes that were the, the leaders. Well, you're right. that The Kohanes come out of the Levites. So the Kohanes, the they do. The Kohanes are a branch of the Levites. So the Levites are everyone, and the Kohanes are the top Levites. And eventually, they just get referred to separately. Originally, they're just Levites. Moses is a Levite, and Aaron is a Levite, and they're the ones who come out of Egypt, and they have the priestly worship, and they set up the Mishkan, and, and, um, and then the Kohanes become uh, the, the, the top the Levites, the, the elite Levites, exactly right. And it is interesting that one of the famous stories um, in, in Numbers is about Pinchas, the Levite, who kills a local Moabite woman, and an Israelite, and um, he's then elevated to high priest, and Pinchas is an Egyptian name. He clearly was one of the people that came out of Egypt, and he doesn't like the fact that some of the Israelites that he finds, you know, you're going back home in a way, but it's been hundreds of years. When he comes back to the motherland, we can now say that instead of the fatherland, when Pinchas returns to the motherland, he sees that some of these Israelites are going with the local women, you know, the, the Jordanian women, and the, he doesn't like that. He's like, we're Israelites, we're, we're, we're Hebrews, and we've got to stay away from them, and so we understand their passion about it. Now, and and one more question. Can a woman be a Kohen? Wait, what? Can a woman be a Kohen? You're right that, um, it's a very interesting question. Can a woman be a Kohen? So a woman can actually serve as a Kohen. She can be part of the Kohen group because she's married in. You can be a bot Kohen, a child of a Kohen, but... One of the interesting things, if, if I can answer a slightly different question, is this. Isn't it interesting that if Deborah was in charge of the Israelites in Israel, then that would have been probably a very female-friendly society. A female, you know, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is always an Isra Israeli. Let's just go with that, right? <laughs> she would have been very pro-women. But the Levites who come out of Egypt, they're not so pro-women. There, you know, the religion does become men-centered because you have to be a man to be a Levite. And so one of the interesting things is it seems like the women, Deborah, Israelite society, they turn over religion to the Levites who are not so into including women in the religion. It kind of reminds me of the land of Israel today where they turned over religion to the ultra-Orthodox who are also not very friendly to women. And, uh, and it's kind of like, I'm really against people, turn, you know, politicians who turn over religion to the fundamentalists. And I think Deborah might have been David Ben-Gurion 3,000 years before, because David Ben-Gurion did the same thing. When they said to David Ben-Gurion right after independence, he's on tape, they said, well, how religious are you going to be? He's like, I'll leave that to the Orthodox. So I feel like Deborah was a warrior woman she was like a queen or a leader. She was the tribal chieftain. And when they came, she's like, you can't have any land. Run the religious worship. I could care less. A little bit like David Ben-Gurion saying, you guys run the worship. But it's interesting. You're right. The priestly worship was not very um, women-centered, as it might have been if Deborah had done it herself. We'll leave it at that. I want to thank you for your attention. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. And thanks for inviting me to Rabbi Patty. Residents, um, are they going on the bus now? No, um, I think so. Um, there are two bathrooms down here, and there are two upstairs.